Hello and welcome to another episode of Windsor Live. Tonight we have our good friend James back in the hot seat. How are we doing, James? I am doing well. I am so sorry I had to miss out on the second episode of this fine podcast, but I think it was good to let people know that there are other people in the town of Windsor. You know, if you're watching from out of town, <laughs> it could be conceivable that we are the only two members of this town and it is some kind of yeah. of uh, um, some kind of planned experiment. Yeah, we both live on the other end of the post office. <laughs> <laughs> No, but we missed you, though we had a wonderful conversation with Cody Sullivan, a comrade over here at the River Power Podcast Mill, about the idea of space making, the the concept of of looking at the space that you have and and turning it or thinking about it, how you can use it in new ways. And we're kind of going to extend that conversation Mm -hmm. uh, tonight, but take it in a different uh, direction. So... The theme of the evening is a, how do you describe it? Strong Towns is a set of two words that ends up meaning a whole lot more. It's a book, yes. It's a lot of media, in fact. Some call it a movement. And it is a, to me, a fascinating new way to really think about the infrastructure and the community space around us. And when, I, and the real irony is, when I say a new way, it's really actually <laughs> a thousands sure. of years old way of doing things. But that that we'll we'll get into that. Um. We have a couple of videos to share with you t- uh, this evening that I think will be uh, will be you know able to, uh, help to get the conversation started. And just so you know, we are trying out a new platform for this uh, video interchange, so uh, there could be bugs. Yeah. So I think this is. I think before we do too much else, it is a good opportunity to start the first YouTube video. So, without further ado, here's our first Strong Towns video. Nothing that we've done post-World War II makes any financial sense. None of it actually returns more revenue than it generates in costs. We've been putting off this national dialogue we need to have for a long time. And I think the nine apprehension that a lot of us have is that we're just ready to get it on. I simply ask the question, why don't we just cut Washington, D.C. out of the equation? Strong Towns is a nonprofit organization based out of Minnesota. We're passionate about the intersection between the finance, the design, and the long-term viability of our places. The way we finance our places today is vastly different than what we did 100 years ago. The way we used to build our places uh, was much more incremental, much more organic. 
much different funding mechanisms than what we've used post-World War II in the suburban experiment. So at Strong Towns, what we've done is we've taken a lot of time and a lot of care to evaluate the financial implications of our development pattern and identify what works and what doesn't. So we try to help people understand that, that it's okay to question the world around them. And then we say, let's start looking at some of the implications of this. And we go through actually examples of different developments and how the long-term finances work out for them and why it gives this kind of short-term illusion of prosperity when we do the auto-oriented development, why it makes us feel wealthy, but why ultimately uh, it leads to stagnation and then dramatic decline. If you look at the federal DOT and you look at the system of bringing in gas tax and sending it back to the states uh, as a way to maintain our highway systems, it, it's simply not working. I mean, we have dimes, nickels on the dollar of revenue coming in for what is ultimately needed to maintain everything that we've built. In general, the places that are arguing for the kind of more progressive transportation approach are the states that, on a net, tend to send more money to Washington than they get back for transportation. Why don't we just cut Washington, D.C. out of the equation? Why don't you let a state like New York keep the 20% that they're losing when the money comes here and then gets sent back? Let them use that 20% to, to build the systems that they want and let you know a state like Idaho, let them have what they want, which is less federal intervention in their approach, and let them make some decisions on how they're going to spend the transportation dollars they produce in their state. Really, at the end of the day, that might be better for them. This whole thing started as a blog. And literally, it was just a way for me to kind of reconcile and think through some of the things I was seeing and some of the things I was experiencing in the communities that I was working in. A Strode is a street road hybrid. It's the futon of transportation options. You take all of the accessibility of a street and mash it up with all of the wide highway type geometries of a road and you have a Strode. It's the most unproductive type of transportation improvement we can create. Roads are meant to be high speed connections between two places. You go from place A to place B, you want to get there as quickly and as safely as you can. A street, on the other hand, is a platform for creating value. When you get to a street, we not only need to be able to accommodate cars, but we also need to be able to accommodate people on foot, people on bikes, people in wheelchairs, all the types of people that would wind up uh, going into a store, going into a home. And so a strode combines the worst of both. It has very poor accessibility, uh, very high speeds, at the end of the day, it is very expensive to build, very expensive to maintain, doesn't create a lot of wealth, and is incredibly unsafe. The things that make us want to be in a place just happen to, and it's not by accident, uh, also be the places that make things financially viable. So once you put those two together and start to intersect them, you can start to get a notion of, okay, here's the things that I can actually do in my own community to not only make it a place that I want to live in, but make it a place that is financially going to be much better off. How in the world do we have an economy where that can possibly be true? And why are we okay with having that economy? And why are we okay with having that economy? Amen. When I started doing the podcast, I had a friend of mine say, podcast, what a great idea. Please tell me you're not going to talk the whole time. <laughs> and that's been a lot of what it's wound up being. We explore mostly whatever topics we're talking about on the blog. You know, some people are reading people, some people are listening people, some people are watching people. And so we've kind of tried to branch out to capture all of them. Uh, we drove all the way to Bismarck, North Dakota once. It was six and a half hours. 
and wound up giving the presentation to four people. And we felt that was successful, you know. We were sharing this message and we were improving it as we went. Uh, all of a sudden, in 2012, everything just exploded. We visited over 50 different cities, 50 different groups that year, gave the presentation to groups of, of hundreds of people. It is amazing uh, to see the crowds growing and the number of people show out and just the enthusiasm for the concept of building a strong town, building a resilient place. I always tell people, if you want to do honor to what we're doing, if you think what we're doing is great and valuable, uh, pass it on. I mean, we make all of our stuff free to use, to copy, to pass around. I think we're headed into a tough time, but there's a lot of good in essentially a good, hard reset. And so to me, the optimistic message is the kind of waiting, the road that we've been kicking the can down is coming to an end, and that's gonna force us to make some tough decisions. I'm confident that when faced with it, we're gonna make good decisions, and they're gonna make us decisions that will put us in a better place, not only for us, for our kids, for our grandkids, make our country a stronger place, make it a better place to live. That was 2013, folks. Yep. <laughs> so I think the the things that uh, the Strong Towns movement, specifically what uh, Charles Marone, is it Marone? I think it's Marone. We'll say, we'll say Marone. Yeah. Charlie what, M. What he's talking about are going to be very useful going forward because, you know, we're not exactly looking at a great economic picture. Um, <laughs> right. And, um, you know, all economic signs are pointing towards a downturn, but I think uh, the COVID-19 virus has definitely made that, or uh, not just a possibility, but a reality. Um, it's brought it home real quick. Yeah, and, made it and 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 sent the economy into a place that you know it it is um it it's possible had the coronavirus not happened that it would have been a slower descent. Most people, you know, I mean, every economy will go through a recession at some point. That is just how it goes. It's ebb and it's flow. That is the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. And you hope that the downturns aren't so bad. Uh, this being the second unprecedented once in a lifetime economic collapse that I've lived through uh, thus thus far, um, I start to wonder if the systems that yield these cratering moments might be the very um, the very things that that Charles Marone was was warning us about. Mm -hmm. you know, the structures that can just collapse almost overnight do not, you know, indicate a strong, infrastructure and that is what you know what strong towns aims to correct but what's fascinating about it is it's from the bottom up it really is a town by town community based approach to understanding appreciating and evolving your spaces into something that's really truly useful and truly worth loving as well and i think that that's that's you know one of the strongest parts of the message yeah, there are a couple and, things that I I wanted to. Oh, go for it. Oh, go. <laughs> so the other thing I always think about when I'm looking at these ways to revitalize communities um, are what is it going to take to adopt these strategies? Mm -hmm. Often it is hundreds of million dollar of millions in dollars in investment, a lot of hope, right. a lot of trust. 
The thing that struck me the first time I read anything related to Strong Towns is that all you really have to do is stop trying to force the issue and look at what's working in your community, mm-hmm. right? It's not like, well, this is what the neighbor community is doing. You know, this is what's this is what's happening in Norwich. This is what's happening in Hartford. Mm-hmm. Rather than that, look at what is going well in Windsor. Identifying the things that can be done to improve Windsor specifically, not just a cookie cutter. This is what we've seen work in these locations. So conventional wisdom says you need one of these. Right. Um, And I think it also looks at specifically revitalizing some of the underserved communities because it it acknowledges that those are the most productive communities financially, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really easy for us to look at um, a big kind of agrarian estate well outside of town, but still within our tax uh, collecting area and think, oh man, all of the money is just out there in the hills. Mm-hmm. And if you were to look just specifically at Windsor, if you were to look at the most financially productive parts of the town per acre, it is Jarvis Street, it's River Street, it's Main Street. It's those areas where there are lots of taxable properties in a a small area. Mm-hmm. And so the strong towns approach and and it's it's also those are the areas that need the most love right now, right? Mm-hmm. So the strong towns approach acknowledges that these are our most financially productive areas. They are also the areas that need our attention, right? So I love what he said about the it, it it should come as no surprise, but for some reason it's novel. The idea that the very things that make a place nice to be at are actually the very things that make it financially viable. The very things that make you want to stop and hang out somewhere and take in an afternoon and and be out and and you know be invested and interested in the, your surroundings uh, to get coffee, get a beer, get something to eat you know, read a book in a park, whatever it is, your environments that attract you tend to be the things that make the most money. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you sit there and you spend money. (laughs) It's not (laughs) difficult. But he also talked about an automotive, an automotive uh, based um, production model. And, um, you know, that wasn't really the scope of that video. So this kind of glossed over it. But what he's talking about is this, Trend, and you can see it a little bit in Windsor, but you can really see it in areas like Claremont and West Lebanon. Right. Um, of Windsor putting the commerce kind of outside of this. town. What's and that? Windsor was was not completely, but in large part, saved from this trend. I think from being such an old town, yeah, and being in a particular physical space. But it is the theory that you put the commerce outside of town, right? Because it is easier to pull uh to pull people in from other uh other towns to do your shopping there right so Mm -hmm. there is this commercial node 
outside of the residential district and people are going to be drawn there because you got to buy something somewhere. Right. Um, and everybody and, drives. <laughs> well, and, and so here's the thing that worked for a long time because the internet wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. So you did have to buy something from somewhere. You didn't have to buy it from your living room or your bathroom. Right. <laughs> right. Um, the case may be. Sure. So, so for a long time, that was a viable thing. And I think anyone who is from not America and comes to the United States will see that we are just car obsessed, right? Right. Um, None of our towns are especially walkable anymore, except for the larger urban areas, but suburbs, you know, there's not a ton of walkability. There is that whole problem, even where there is a robust, um, a robust public transit system of that last mile issue where mm-hmm. you can get to an area, but then from there on out, you're, you're kind of walking in a culvert or right. hoping to not get run over. And that is definitely true in Windsor. You know, you can take right. mass transit up to the, you know, to the upper Valley, to the major employers, but you have to go to Heartland or you have to go right. to a Scutney. Right. To very, do it. Very, very good point. <laughs> um, and I you think the closest we the ever point. got to solving that problem is when they shut the park and ride down in in Heartland. So they moved the park and ride to the middle of town. And that was that was the most I ever saw people utilizing like the the current bus system was mm-hmm. when it dropped you off in town at the uh Which at makes the old gas station. All the sense in the world. Yeah. It's worth noting, too, this is a fairly American problem, and it's not to say that this kind of, uh, you know, anti-pattern growth hasn't happened in other places, but that in America, we really, really had a couple of different factors lining up to push this auto-centric way of building, where the automobile was invented at a time of some, some you know, a, a, an early century uh, of... Uh, upward mobility and the ability to actually uh, afford a vehicle and so it became so wrapped up in the american dream and the narrative that you know you've got a you've got your house and you've got your car and you can go places because this is america and also america's huge like the north the north american continent is massive and so we've got space to to do it but we've we totally forgot the 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 assembled knowledge of thousands of years of humans building cities yeah. that that we had you know lived by for so long and if you're if you're interested in the history of that man that should be a science that episode but that's a great idea <laughs> but um you can either read the strong town's book um uh marone marone uh quotes this author i'm going to talk about quite a bit, but you could also read the Jared Diamond book, um, the, the world up until yesterday where it, um, really charts ancient and less ancient society up until the pre-modern era. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't go up until yesterday, but it is really an archeological view of, of, uh, human society. And one of the things that you realize is that for, oh, I don't know, 10,000 years, Mm -hmm. we tended to cluster in groups and we would work from a center, a center out model, right? Mm -hmm. So everything is, is, 
in the center. You think about a Greek city-state. It's the polis. It's the hill in the middle of town where all of the super wealthy people are. Um, and that changed in the United States. Specifically, uh, Marone mentions in Detroit because that is the birthplace of the American middle class. Um, it just is. And that is where you start to see these um, uh, exurbs, suburbs and exurbs that are within driving distance to the metropolitan center. So all of a sudden, you have these inter inner cities, and there's a lot of other reasons why, why people left the inner cities, and a lot sure. of them are not Quality great of life, and a lot know. of them are extremely racist oh, yeah. and <laughs> I, I go to like get out of the goddamn city and get into the woods but sure yeah that's <laughs> that's um, that's a very good point too and and you know there's also the problem of redlining and everything within right. these suburbs and exurbs but the point is that this new burgeoning middle class was decided to move to the outskirts um and it just kind of artificially inflated the value of property there. So all of a sudden, you know, you go into sub, you go into a supply and demand model, mm-hmm. and all of the demand from the upper class and the middle class now is towards the the periphery. So there is no right center pool. Right, it's it's all pushing towards the periphery. Right. So let's talk about the logistics of that because that's where I think the math uh, that Strong Towns is 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 really largely based on become starts to make a lot of sense, right? So if you are a city state, if you're a municipality, if you're a town that is centrally oriented from the inside out, and you're constructing the workflow of resource sharing, there's you're going to have a sort of spoke and and wheel situation where there's a large concentration of resources and easy access to to them in a central location. And then the further away from that, you're going to have a harder time getting those resources, but you know, you can, you can come back in and go back out. And that's kind of the the whole uh, idea of making a walkable, accessible uh, logistic workflow setup. So then if you, Fast forward to this American example we're talking about, it has placed so much of the the economic activity further out. And so that means that in order to get resources to those places, you've got to expel more energy to get there. In order to sustain those places, you've got to get resources to them. So that's water, that's electricity, and then then all of the extra infrastructure required to to do that. Now, it's not to say that, that... Growth is bad. That's not it at all. But there's a certain pattern that you see developing where you push so far out in the name of growth and you you try to reach so far that at a certain point, the ability to collect and create wealth and, and revenue from those structures becomes too expensive to maintain. Mm-hmm. And there's another component of that where he only he only sort of touched on it in 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 that video, but how the handoff of ownership and liability from private developments to the public space is often a really tumultuous tsunami 
of cost that all comes due at the same time. And if you if you can extend that that you know that idea to these built out satellite infrastructures that require support and resources to keep moving in which you're not necessarily able to get a return anymore when it comes time for the tax base to pony up and replace the infrastructure that feeds those locations the the you know the 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 pipes that get the water out there and the pumps that you know push it along the way it is often so much more expensive than it ever was to do the development in the first place that you're left in a negative situation worse off than you would have been. Mm -hmm. And if you, uh, you know, if you were to take the traditional approach as, as Marone talks about, um, when you get to that point where you're kind of stretched beyond the means of the center to supply, there is there is kind of a built-in snapback where things start start to move towards the center, but we've kind of pushed it out so far that instead of that snapback towards the center, you have this decline, right? right? So the center's already declined because we're putting all of our resources into the periphery. Um, and I know if I'm saying center periphery, like I'm in the middle of of some kind of uh, archaeology seminar, but. It's the terms I know best. <laughs> um, we'll forgive you. But, uh, you know, if if the center is declined, the periphery is starting to go in decline. It's just a longer uh, exacerbated period of decline. And that's where you see areas. And I know this this region hates to hear it, but like the Rust Belt is a really good version of that where all of this wealth was being generated by this um, this manufacturing class, right? So it created this middle class. And so while that really, uh, uh, really large manufacturing base was there to generate the wealth, you had the ability for this artificial um, creation of new growth in the outskirts to be... Um, really really um well kind of positioned and then mm -hmm. seemingly overnight in the united states specifically uh you have the loss of this wealth generation in the center so now you don't have the ability to kind of keep artificially inflating this this uh suburbs and exurbs movement right. And that's where you see um, this whole model kind of falling apart. And if you look at areas that were not hit by that, they tend to be smaller and clustered. And you'll see this almost like rings on a tree of growth patterns going out. Like it's not all at one time with a with a gap in the in the middle, mm -hmm. right? There is a period of growth and stagnation, but never necessarily going into disrepair, right? Mm -hmm. So by the stagnation, it's just no new development. Mm -hmm. It's There's still reinvigoration and reuse, but it's never um, going into to neglect. Right. And that's the, that is the, 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 the sort of, you know, positive consequence of not, of not, you know, uh, 
blowing it all on on these massive projects that we point to as as such you know signs of of growth and of progress but what you find is when you're a little more incremental and you're a little more intentional and you and you and you really think about the the flow of humans enjoying their space and doing work in their space and getting their getting their resources in their space when you really think about that you can weather those low times better because you have the resources and your infrastructure is efficient mm-hmm. now i'll just throw up the counterpoint that i'm sure somebody out there is probably screaming at us screaming at us right like we are both you and i are americans mm-hmm. and Never in the history of the United States of America has there been slow incremental growth, right? Like, we got real angry about tea and just decided to call it quits. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) we think that because that is how the country has started, it is just ingrained in in the American psyche, right? But Mm -hmm. it totally isn't. you know, <laughs> we don't we don't like to take our time to do many things as Americans, but this model still works. I mean, you can look at <laughs> the towns that weren't hit by economic decline in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, or the early 2000s. Um, gosh, it doesn't seem right that we can talk about the 2000s like that was two decades ago. But... Right, an era ago, but here we are. <laughs> um but there are communities that weathered those storms and we should start looking at what they're doing. And, you know, he specifically points out areas like Austin and uh, Portland where there have been these kind of whole community focused industries or uh, commercial interests that have gone away, but the community never went into like rapid decline. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, maybe Austin, he uses Austin as a, a reference because they have like a really great grassroots commerce movement, mm-hmm. but it's also the capital of the state. So uh, I've always kind of thought that that might be certainly helps. a false equivalency. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a built in number of people that are there no matter what. Um, but you know, it's still, it doesn't take away with what they're doing at the, at the local level, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're still able to kind of have this grassroots thing. Um, I think in the state of Vermont, um, Burlington is a, is an okay model to look at, um, specifically what's been done downtown with like the church street marketplace, um, and all of these areas that are very pedestrian friendly. Right. Um, but it is an, it is it is not a one-to-one, right? Like I, I wouldn't say that Burlington has totally bought in to the strong towns model because. Oh no. I used to work. I used to uh, work in South Burlington and live in Burlington. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, uh, there are real obstacles in yeah. a, uh, a place like that. And, and you see it. I mean, if you really think about these places that, you know, you, you see it, you're aware of like, Oh boy, my job is way over there and I live way over here. And why, <laughs> why is it that all of the yeah. opportunities are so far over there? And, and I thought about it a lot sitting in front of big box stores on my lunch break, looking around at literally nothing, just nothing sitting next to a dumpster 
maybe a tree, but mostly concrete and and wondering how what I was going to listen to to fill the half hour to 40 minute walk on my way back to my apartment across town. Sure. You know? Well, and that's like we can also point to kind of the least um, looking at the strong towns model. And it's, it's probably not the towns you're expecting. Like some of the towns that I'm going to list off are extremely profitable. Um, but potentially not sustainable. Now the first one I'm going to list seems like they're going to be fine for a long time, but Norwich, Vermont, like if you think of Norwich, you're like, Oh man, uh, tax revenue, cash cow. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot in Norwich. It just so happens that they are within walking distance and they have made sure that you can walk there uh, within walking distance of Dartmouth college. And I would love for Windsor to be in walking distance to Dartmouth college, but it never will be. Right. I mean, while I, if you're really dedicated, you can do it, but, um, it's going to be really hard to move the earth like that. It'd take a heck of a hurt of a, of an earthquake. And that's why I talk about doing the things that are right for Windsor, right? right. We can never be Norwich. We can never, we can never even be White River because we're just not at a railroad hub, right? Like, and, and we, why should we? Because to, to try to emulate that is, is again, against this, this ethos, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole point is to recognize what makes you unique, what makes your sure. area special and what makes it, what are its characteristics that you can lean into. And those are the very things that people all around us are attracted to and what bring, what brings them to a location, what makes them stay in a location. Mm-hmm. It's all tied up in that acceptance of identity of uniqueness. Yeah. And now I'm going to provide another counterpoint that is just for the sake of discussion. So we talk about Windsor as being safe from this kind of artificial periphery. Largely. We uh, won't say completely, but so yeah, yeah, but no, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw a wrench in the entire situation. So what about Artisan Park, right? Mm -hmm. Our largest kind of commercial and uh, industrial area is not within walking distance of the center of town. So is, is there somewhere, is there, is there a way that we can use that as a benefit, right? Is Mm -hmm. there something we can do along the way that kind of bridges that gap? If you're referring (laughs) to what I think you're referring to, it's not so much a bridge, but it's a bike path. Right. (laughs) I've Um, said it before. If you don't know about this plan, it's one of my favorite plans currently in process in Windsor, Vermont. The creation of a bike path between Artisan Park and the downtown Windsor uh, area. And the reason why this is exactly, man, perfect, perfect, perfect (laughs) point. This is exactly why I find it so exciting because... It brings together these two disparate ends of town that uh, it, it, it makes them not, you know, not physically closer, obviously, but but more tied together, more accessible. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's there's a there's a real, you know, a bridge, a, a an arm reached across from one point to the other. And I think the that access will absolutely fuel greater economic sure. vitality. 
And it also gives us a blank canvas on which to do all sorts of other cool ideas. Uh, you know, if you go to towns that have some form of this, it could be like a river walk. Right. Um, it could be be something else. You know, if you go to Springfield, they have that whole uh, uh, jogging path along the Black River. Um, Springfield, Vermont, I should say. Um, but it gives you the opportunity to do other cool, interesting things. Uh, so there is a new group in town that is looking at ways to increase the amount of public art right. that is available for use. And man, two miles of uh, two miles of unadorned bike path and walking path seems like a great opportunity to do something. And it may not just be public art, but you can put things there for people to kind of experience along the way. Um, and that is where this model. Uh, where you're, where you're kind of placemaking. So we're not necessarily within the strong towns model anymore because we're 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 talking about uh, just at, we're at the neighborhood level at this point, right? We're not necessarily talking about the whole community, but but this idea of placemaking, which you you uh, and Cody kind of touched on last last episode, um, it gives you the opportunity to let the neighborhood kind of grow into what it's going to be and you do things to make that neighborhood appealing but you don't go in and say like all right this square mile here is your light residential area right it's not congratulations (laughs) it's Um, not (laughs) as much time as i've spent on sim cities it is not that yeah right exactly um (laughs) but it it's uh you know that was the way that many mid-sized communities in the the US were you know the zoning board was there to create blocks of color coded things that look great on a map mm-hmm. but if you talk to anyone who really is into zoning they will be the first to tell you that that is not the point of a zoning board um it is a way to kind of put policy in place for something that maybe like in specifically in Windsor, I not I don't know if every town has this this kind of flowchart, but having a planning board that is separate from the zoning board, uh, it seems kind of alien to a lot of people because usually they're all in one one uh, office. But it really kind of lets the planning commission set the very long term goal, mm-hmm. and then the zoning board will come in and put some policy behind that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you get down to like the interaction between the citizen and the zoning board and the, the planning commission is a little bit sheltered from that. I mean, they're still subject to, to public hearings. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not, they're not working through every bit of it. So it's almost like the acid test for the planning commission, right? The zoning board is seeing like, Oh no, we have had so many complaints maybe the planning commission needs to plan on commissioning something else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm oversimplifying the role of the zoning board. And to be fair, Charles Marone comes down pretty hard on zoning boards. He does. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think there is a point, uh, you know, a point to having that policy in place. Um, 
And I kind of lost the thread there. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think I think I let me try to to pick it up. I think that you know, especially in the context of town government and and in town efforts in a place like Windsor, that's that's small. The uh, it's. It's really fascinating and interesting to dissect how those how these two functions of the of of town you know kind of operate and what their relationship is and and I think that is a fairly unique thing here where we have like one group that sort of sets the grand plan sets the tone sets the you know the the ideas and then another one that kind of comes in and, and looks a little bit more granularly on on what mm-hmm. what that means on the ground you know sure. uh and that's one of the things that you know it's i think this is a really hard thing to relate to people people you know when someone asks me why i'm so optimistic uh, about windsor it's you, it's hard to 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 sort of point to like well we got a lot of good people on a lot of good boards to and, <laughs> and for anyone to walk you know not in windsor walk away from that going like okay dude yeah that's tangible but it, but but truly <laughs> I'm seeing just so many wonderful volunteers in these very key places that I'm excited because I think that it 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 truly enables uh, wonderful things to happen. And so that's one of the things that right now it's not you don't see me like you know making an entire episode about it or you know making uh ma- you know making exclusive posts about it. But we're very lucky in that place, and I think that that is going to yield some interesting things over the next couple years although we should probably do some more in-depth episodes about how the different commissions work so we'll save that for for uh the future boy it's good this is not a limited series huh i know it's ongoing (laughs) we can do this as many times as many times as we need to and we will but this might be uh what do you think is this a good time to play our clip number two the yeah so um one, I, I do want to circle back to, oh, God, I, God, I hate that I'm saying circle back so much now, but I am. It's not nickel back, <laughs> um, so we'll take it. But to, to your point, um, having, having uh, you know, revitalization, any, we'll, we'll say urban revitalization, but what we're talking about is downtown. Um, be started with all these talented people on board before we do anything. It means, and, and it's talent that is, coming from the ranks of town. We're not like headhunting right. a professional to come in from Boston or something. Exactly. It shows that it is it is a little bit more grassroots, right? So it's it's um homegrown, it's sustainable, mm-hmm. um all the buzzwords. But it shows that things that we put in place are more likely to take root because they are being kind of planned and developed from people who hold a stake in the community. Right. Um, Marone talks a lot about community stakeholders and how it's important to engage them. And I think that's something that Windsor is a little bit uh, better suited for than some of the communities around here that have just kind of co-opted wholesale some models that don't necessarily work. But that is not to say that there are not detractors for this movement. Sure. Um, Nor challenges to it. Yeah. So I think that is a good time to uh, start sharing this new YouTube, this other YouTube video. Because all of this stuff really does fly in the face of a lot of lessons that we've been taught for most of our lives. And so, um, you know, it's, it's easy to 
I found too, while studying this, it can be easy to kind of like flip flop a little bit between like, okay, wait, but, but my, you know, what I've, my, my animal brain says, or my lizard brain says that no, 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 we should be growing. We should be building this thing. Cause that's a good thing. Uh, but it, it does, you know, it, it's not so cut and dry. It's just totally the point. And uh, this this next clip that we're going to play is uh, Charles Marone and then another person named David. Um, oh boy, I had to I had to put myself on the spot. David something or other, and we'll uh, mention it after the clip. That is involved in the uh, Strong Towns organization. That uh, they t- are talking about what are some of the uh, uh, biggest criticisms, or what are, what do they run into? What uh, what negativity do they run into when talking about this, and and how they kind of get through that. I think the most common source of pushback that we get, and I understand where it comes from, is to the idea of incrementalism. You know, really central to the small town's philosophy is the idea that resilient systems and resilient places are built from the bottom up by many different hands, and therefore through a bunch of really small steps. Um, And that doesn't mean that that process can't happen rapidly, but it means that cities need to be humbling themselves to not look for the silver bullet solution to whatever the pressing problem of the moment is. You know, we're going to do a a billion dollar redevelopment district in our downtown and that's going to revitalize everything. Or we shared an article that I found, um, we shared it from the Strong Town social media feeds about a month ago about the the collapse of a crucial, and those were the words in the headline, a crucial 13,000 unit housing development in Concord, California. And, um, the, the comment that, that we had on it was, as soon as you see the phrase crucial 13,000 unit housing development, like something is out of balance here. Um, but I know a lot of people and I'm sympathetic to the people who would say the scale of the housing crisis in the San Francisco Bay Area is colossal and we need all the units we can get and small developers aren't up to the task. And we should be cheerleading projects like this because these are the people who have the means to move some earth and get something built. Um, You see it with public transit advocates. We have kind of clashed, I think, from time to time with transit advocates who are really motivated by a sense of urgency about, you know, whether the issue is environmental, whether it's social equity or whatnot. But there are a lot of reasons to say we need to get Americans out of their cars, including reasons that strong towns would absolutely endorse. Car-dependent development patterns are incredibly costly. They tend to be financially insolvent. They tend to be really, really fragile after a generation or two. We can't keep doing this. We can't keep building a world that looks like the world we've built since the 1950s. And so the transit people will say, we need huge amounts of federal investment from the top down and we need to build light rail, heavy rail, BRT, the works, but we need to be doing it everywhere in, you know, spread out Sunbelt metros in the Northeast. Like, you know, and so, for example, um, I wrote a criticism last um, last spring of a $3 billion light rail project in the Raleigh-Durham area that kind of fell apart. And it fell apart amid opposition from Duke University to having a station on its campus, along with some other issues. Um, and the local planners were saying, this is a disaster for us. For 20 years, we've been planning for this enormous light rail line that was going to snake through the suburbs of Chapel Hill and Durham, and it was going to connect research, um, you know, biotech businesses, and it was going to connect research universities. And we planned all of our land use plans incorporated this, all of our affordable housing plans were centered around the assumption that we're going to have this light rail. And now Duke is going to be selfish and we can't have our light rail. And I 
get it. I get the impulse to say we have huge problems, we need huge solutions. And it's a much harder path to envision to say we need solutions that can scale. We need solutions that can go like in, in any other time and forgive the, the, if this comes across as insensitive, like a month ago, I would have with no hesitation said we need solutions that can go viral. And perhaps that's a little bit um, off color right now. But, um, but really that's what Strong Towns is about is it's not about slow change. It's not about the crisis that you care about isn't important enough. It's about, we can't do that $3 billion light rail project that's dependent on buy-in from a bunch of big institutions and then do it again and again and again and again until we've transformed America's development pattern. We need to work from the foundations of how are we gonna build a system that looks totally different from the bottom up and how are we going to empower thousands or millions of people to participate in building that world. And I think that's a hard pill to swallow for people who are a little bit more focused on this is the urgent crisis I care about and we need to do something now. I, I want to say it this way and see if you push back on this, Daniel. Um, because I, I feel like particularly in the writing that you did, Daniel, on the Green New Deal, um, you know, when, when that proposal first came out, I, I think we have found particularly among this, this, you know, the four of us here have very different, I think, political uh, inclinations, very different voting habits and voting patterns. I think that that's true throughout the Strong Downs movement. I, I think when I think back of your writing on the Green New Deal, that what we agreed on in consensus is that, uh, you know, here's the goals that we share. Here's the things that we're trying to accomplish. And what the struggle really is, at least the biggest friction that I see, is between an impulse to centralize, an impulse to kind of go big or go home, uh, an, an impulse to say, we understand the, the problem thoroughly, and so we have the answer, and let's just be brave and bold and go do it. And this, and I'm, 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 I'm casting this in, in good versus evil terms, and I, I know there's nuance to this, um, but, you know, the opposite terms, which is more of a humility-based approach, which is like, okay, boy, this problem's really complex. There's a lot of different moving parts here. We don't understand them all. By working incrementally, we're going to allow for feedback. We're going to allow for ourselves to learn and to grow and to change. We're going to be respectful of people along the way and the way they're going to react to things. I feel like the big tension and the big critique of Strong Towns today comes from the centralizers, uh, what Nassim Taleb would call the fragilistas, the people who, in a sense, uh, tend to simplify down to like one or two things. And I feel like a lot of our, um, a lot of the, 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 the unwind we're seeing right now, uh, as our economy, you know, goes into this hibernation mode, we're not able to hibernate because we've centralized and, and, and aggregated everything in one place and it, it can't sit still for two weeks, two months, four months, uh, the way that a more natural organic system could. So Daniel, I don't know if you have a objection to the term centralizers or not, but that, that's the way that I've been looking at it most recently. Because it's interesting when you start to overlay that on top of the left-right political spectrum, which I increasingly doesn't capture this tension between top and bottom very well at all. Um, but I think people default to certain understandings of these are the pressing problems in the world and these are the tools we have to solve them. And Strong Towns has challenged my thinking because it proposes a totally different 
set of tools and a totally different approach that is uncomfortable if you are used to wanting the solution, um, the plan, you know, and I think the way I would put it for the people who, whose life's work is motivated by moral urgency, because I'm one of those people, I know a lot of those people, and I get the discomfort, is the, what you want is to create a world in which the solutions to the problems that you find urgent are gonna come from a thousand different places at once, and those thousand people are gonna each inspire a thousand people, and it's all gonna unfold in ways that you haven't even imagined yet. And a lot of that comes down to the starting conditions. And if you can get that right, and if you can get rid of these really dysfunctional systems that are impeding people from co-creating a better world, um, I think that we'll be amazed by what happens. Interesting. That's such yeah. a great clip. That's such a great, a great, uh, so much to unpack there. I love, I love, I love so much of what he says about, you know, how, the current left-right political paradigm, you know, uh, continue like uh, more and more does not properly express the tension between top and bottom. Right. I, you know, I love the uh, the idea that, in a sense, enabling real, organic, sustainable growth is kind of relinquishing some control. Sure. You know, I, I, I just, I, I love that way of thinking where it's allowing all of us to co-create the space we want to live in. And the thing to remember though, it's not, it's not relinquishing control to like some nebulous thing like the right, markets. Right. It's relinquishing control from those who have power to those who are actually living and working in the community, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think that there's this false, this false assumption of, you know, control is something I participate in that is this top down thing. And I participate in that top down system, but it is allocated from the top to the bottom of the system. And that's totally antithetical to strong towns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it should be taken, um, as particularly uh, maybe ironic, but I think powerful that two elected officials are advocating for a system that will strip them of <laughs> a good chunk of their power. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not about, it's not about the power. It's a, it's about the, the collective power, right? It, exactly. it, you know, to think about, you know, vesting this power in an office and that that is what's going to save us is, so a, a large part of what has gotten us in this situation and yeah. and it's it's uh again co enabling each other to create a space that we want to be in together and i think it you know it goes back to the old parable of of like eggs and baskets right mm -hmm. don't put them all in one um Marome in the strong towns book does this a little bit more elegantly and, and quite a bit more eloquently um, where he talks about uh, these like terrace farmers in the Andes uh, that uh, necessarily split up their little uh, agricultural fields. And it makes it far less efficient because you're walking between um, pretty good distances, but 
it makes the model so much more sustainable because drought in one area or flood in one area doesn't wipe out your entire means of production. Right. So kind of transposing that onto a town, you know, if we have all of these economically thriving areas and one of them goes into uh goes into a bit of a downturn uh you still have the rest of the town to kind of continue to generate wealth and revenue so that the town itself as an entity as a centralized entity can look at that and with knowledge of the past and that feedback system and that's something we didn't really touch on either is that if you're not willing to work slowly you're not going to be getting feedback from these incremental changes so mm-hmm. you're just going to you're going to get to the end and you're going to find out that that was the wrong way and you're going to be out that entire project right? right where if you do small little chunks like say putting extra park benches at this intersection of of retail um opportunities and finding out like huh pedestrian traffic was was increased maybe we should look at putting some sunshade there as well um and oh there's a lot more litter than we were looking forward to so now we have to go back and make sure that we're adding uh trash cans and things like that so it it it's a way where you're putting out little chunks of funding here and there mm-hmm. um and you're not uh you're not wholly dependent on on this home run on this make or break you know thing right and it requires yeah. being willing to listen to each other which sure. you know a, a nice a nice big pill of humility being willing to you know get really passionate about something care deeply about something and then be willing to hear somebody else's potentially totally different super passionate version of something mm-hmm. that that may or may not strike you correctly but but but, sure. but having that space in your heart and in your brain to take that in and internalize it and realize that you know this is our space these are our commons mm-hmm. these are our these are the things we share and and uh can grow together much more and will be much more strong than it would be if any one of us tried to do it on our own. Yeah. And the other thing it, it kind of makes necessary is something, and it's, this is not just a, a, an American downfall. It is a human, a human species downfall. It requires you to be okay with being wrong. Right. Because Correct. For, <laughs> yeah. For this feedback to, work and inform future projects, you're going to fail. I mean, that's just the way it is. You're mitigating those losses by having them be small and, and spread out, but there will be failure and you have to be okay with that. And that is just something that humans are not good at. It's a tough one. It's a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. And it isn't. And and, and this is, I think a bit of a, a, a thing that it's worth noting too. It's, it's, by practicing that craft of putting out energy, getting back feedback from your peers, 
and and potentially being being willing to be wrong and then evolving an idea getting good at that process is in itself an accelerator if as a community yeah. if as a as a, a, a society as a culture we could get better at that incorporate that more into how we do things that 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 picks up momentum in and of itself being able to do that will accelerate the process which uh you you may almost take this as a call to to be better to each other you know if if sure. this if this be a motivator to take that extra second and try to understand where someone's coming from before leaping down a a leaping you know a jumping off into a a a, a, a place of heightened anxiety brought on by buzzwords and triggers if you can sort of hold on to that to that human element a little bit longer and think like okay what where does this come from you may not like it you may not disagree with it and that or you may not agree with it and that's okay too it's just being willing to evolve an idea and an effort together and where we land is a much stronger town sure i think that's i think anything i say is going to be just walking over your very very uh elegant landing and, <laughs> and it's and look our time is up anyway <laughs> yeah so we're gonna obviously cut that part out and end with the stronger town in the podcast for those of you who are watching the live stream uh you know the podcast is available <laughs> <laughs> this podcast has come about via quite a lot of collective effort let me tell you mm -hmm. and thank you mr james reed for embarking on this crazy journey with me Thank you for being host and uh, thank you for giving a damn. It's a, it's, it's this whole thing is an exercise in, in just trying to find a place to have these kinds of conversations and very grateful to, to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. If you have an idea that is small, manageable, something that we can get off the ground, you might just have to wait a little bit for that to actually happen because we're Hashtag in an unprecedented amount of we can't really do a whole lot right now. But it does not stop you from conducting and to sending an email to me at jreed at windsorvt.org. I, Chris Goulet, can be found at C Goulet, that's C G O U L E T, at windsorvt.org. You, dear listener, can get this show whenever you want, on every single major podcast platform. And the best thing you can do to make sure that you've always got the latest episode is to subscribe to it. And that also makes me feel better when I put up a new episode and I see all the immediate downloads. It's how I know you and I, we, all, we got a thing. So thank you for that. You can also catch this on Windsor On Air, which is awesome that this show is not just a podcast but it's also a tv show how cool is that yeah and of course we have to thank the river power podcast mill without their support we probably would not have as much of a professional sheen to this um and we do that, yeah we do um <laughs> <laughs> we certainly do the consummate professionals. And we really appreciate everyone taking the time to listen to us tonight. Thank you for being here, and we will see you next week live every Thursday at 1230 and 7 p.m. and always at windsorlive.net. 
have a good night, friends. Bye.